Our vision is to give every baseball player around the world the opportunity to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, respond to the message, and grow in the relationship with Jesus Christ. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. This is the Training for an Eternal Crown podcast with Full Count Ministries. We're diving into the last chapter of 1 Peter today, chapter 5, and our fifth episode of the eight-week series on First and Second Peter. This is the last episode of 1 Peter, and next week we'll be jumping into 2 Peter. I hope you've tuned in every week because it's been an eye-opening experience. My name's Carter Reese, and I'm the Resource Director at Full Count Ministries, and Chad Hutton is teaching us chapter by chapter through the series. He is a pastor and professor, and he's doing a fantastic job teaching us, and we're very thankful to have his insight into the Scripture. Thanks for tuning in. Let me pass it over to him. Glad you are with us at the Training for an Eternal Crown podcast. Hey, Full Count, it's Chad Hutton. We are in 1 Peter chapter 5, and uh, this is written by a man named Peter that uh, was a fisherman, as you've probably heard before. He was rough and he was tough, but the Gospels contrast him with his fear, with his doubt, uh, how many times he uh, backed down, many times he would want to walk on water, and then immediately he would sink. But uh, Jesus Christ, the great owner, manager, player, was his coach. Got into his boat, and uh, Peter probably saw the biggest catch of fish in his life. And this uh, coach, Jesus Christ, said, you're now going to be catching for men. You're going to be fishing for people. And we see that uh, by the time you get to uh, Acts chapter 4, verse 13, that Peter's described as being with Jesus. He didn't have to be intellectual, didn't have to go to the seminaries. He didn't have to know it all. He just needed to know the one true God. He needed to know the great coach, Jesus Christ. And Jesus would tell Peter in advance, you're going to strike out. You think you're going to hit a grand slam, but you're going to fail sometimes because he was trying to get him ready for the big leagues. And that's what a good coach will do. So Peter now is writing to Christians, mainly Gentiles, in northern Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, about 30 years after Christ's ministry. And remember, in the Gospel of John, chapter 21, Jesus Christ restores Peter after Peter had denied him. And he tells Peter that he's going to be a shepherd. And he encourages Peter and says to, uh, to shepherd well. In other words, feed the sheep, feed the flock, tend to the lambs which is very powerful during the restoration uh, that Jesus gave him. Remember, he was out by a fire. Basically, Jesus had cooked the disciples' breakfast, and that was significant for Peter because he had denied Jesus in the courtyard by a fire. And he denied him three times, and, and Jesus uh, restored him three times by saying, Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And then he told Peter that he was going to be a leader in the kingdom of God. So Peter is trying here in chapter 5 to encourage the elders, the shepherds of the flock, because Peter, although he was apostle, he was also a shepherd. And Peter knew 
that back in that day, the first people in a church to take a hit regarding persecution was the elders, the pastors, the shepherds. It's kind of like uh, back in the old days when the kings would ride out in front of the army to battle, kind of like Braveheart, you know, half their face painted blue on a white horse, yelling and screaming. Well, uh, the shepherds of a church are supposed to be that way. They ride out in front of their congregation. They show them the way. They're the first ones to bleed, the first ones to get attacked, because that's what a good shepherd will do. They stand in front of the sheep, uh, guarding against the wolves. And so Peter's just, he's uh, encouraging them because probably they have experienced the first wave of persecution, these shepherds. And many times we think about wolves attacking the sheep, but many times they would attack the shepherds because that would put the entire flock in a vulnerable state. Now, Peter, he got to witness the suffering of Christ, and that would have been etched in his mind, knowing that Jesus suffered for him. But also what was etched into Peter's mind is the transfiguration of Jesus when he was taken up on a mountain, and uh, his whole demeanor and countenance was changed. It was a bright light, and he saw, Peter saw the glory of God through Christ. That's what he's talking about here in uh, chapter 5, verse 1, partaking in the glory. Obviously, the transfiguration was important to Peter because in his second epistle, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, he mentions it or alludes to the transfiguration again. Well, Peter's encouraging the elders, the pastors, the shepherds here. He's saying, we're all going to see that glory. So keep your post, even though you experience this persecution. It's one thing for a Christ follower to experience suffering uh, from without, but when you're a shepherd, you often experience persecution and suffering from within because the congregation just doesn't understand your leadership style. They don't understand how much you love them. You're telling them what's best, and they don't want to follow. But Peter encourages them. He's saying, you know, the pastors, the shepherds, they're supposed to lead the way out of genuine passion, not for the pay, not for the glory, not to dominate but to cultivate the congregation as imitators of their Lord Jesus who came to wash feet. And we all need to remember that God came down to shepherd. He came down to make disciples. A pastor is not to do what he's doing for the pay. And a pastor also is not supposed to be a sermonator where they just all they do is they just give sermons and teach people just to sit on their rear end and spectate all their life. This is a problem in American Christianity where the majority of people, after 50 years of being a Christian, most of them, the best they can do is just come and sit, soak, and do nothing and watch as a spectator, just being a fan instead of getting in the game. So I'm a pastor myself, and one of the things I've learned is my sole responsibility is not to feed the sheep. My sole responsibility is to teach them to feed themselves. If I teach them to feed themselves, I still am feeding the sheep. And of course, I want to cook them up a good meal. But if all I did is just teach them, hey, come to me, get a good cooked meal once a week for the rest of your life. Well, that's kind of similar to an enabling mom who's got a 30-year-old son who lives at home and is basically useless. He can't do anything with his life. He even says out loud, Mom, I can't do anything with my life. And what does his mom say? It's okay, honey. I'll cook, cook you a good meal. Well, that's pathetic. 
And it's important to know that a true shepherd, a true pastor, they're like a good coach. They do not enable laziness. They do not enable slothfulness. They get the player out on the field. They show them the ropes. They teach them discipline because they have the best interest for that player. Same way in shepherding. And so Peter is uh, telling these shepherds, remember the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. He's going to reward these earthly shepherds if they stand strong, if they lead humbly, if they not just feed the flock, but teach them to feed themselves. That's what you do when you're a disciple maker. And all pastors are disciple makers. And in a sense, all disciple makers, even if they don't hold the office of elder, pastor, in a sense, they're still shepherding with the word of God, one-on-one, one-on-two, in a small group. And if we stand firm in that and lead humbly, uh, Christ will reward us. And what is the way that Christ has won our respect? Well, he came down and he sacrificed with his love, with humility. That's why we respect him so much. And that's how earthly shepherds are going to win respect in their congregations. However, verse 5, chapter 5, you got the young bucks. They don't want to be led. They don't want anybody to tell them what to do. And Peter can identify with this because how many times in the Gospels do we see Peter telling Jesus Christ what to do? Telling Jesus Christ, hey, you don't want to do that. You don't want to go dying. You don't want um, the, the religious leaders to kill you. I'll go with you, Jesus. And he's basically telling Jesus, hey, you should be doing this. You should be doing that. And Jesus is like, what are you talking about? Get behind me, Satan. So Peter remembers what it was like to be a young buck and not know how to be led. It's kind of like when a coach tells you something, gives you some instructions, gives you a signal, and you really don't like it. You think, well, that's stupid. You know, my coach doesn't know what he's doing. But have you ever got instruction from a coach and you just go along with it, even though you don't agree with it, and it turns out beautiful? And you realize, well, maybe my coach, he knows a little bit more than I once thought. It's kind of like Mark Twain once said, when I was a boy of 14 years old, my father was so ignorant, I could hardly stand to have the old man around. But when I got to be 21 years old, I was astonished at how much the old man had learned in seven years. In other words, Mark Twain is saying, over those seven years, I pretty much grew up and and, and realized my father had been a wise person all along. But you know what it's like if you coach a 12, 13, 14, 15-year-old. They think they know it all. They don't want to be humble. They don't want to listen. They don't want instruction. They roll their eyes. And you got to be patient with them. Well, Peter, after uh, encouraging the elders in this letter, he wants to just tell the whole congregation, if you're a young buck, please watch your elders. Listen to your elders. Do what they say. Tap out. Submit. Make it easy for them to lead you. And then he just goes in to say, hey, that's good advice for everybody. Everybody needs to be humble. All Christ followers need to be humble. In fact, wear it like a Snoop Dogg fur coat. Just wear humility all over. Well, that's what Jesus did. He was in the heavenlies with his father. He came to earth, came to this crap hole, this fallen world, and he wore humility. He wore it. It was all over him. You could see it. When you were with him at a meal, you knew it's like humility was covering him. That's how we should all be. And then Peter goes on to quote 
really kind of this is from various places uh, of the Old Testament, but you can kind of see a little bit in Proverbs 3.34. God is not a big fan of arrogance. Not a big fan of arrogance. He's a pretty big fan of humility. And we all need to be told that. So again, he he commands them, verse 6, Peter does, to humble themselves. Be humble. That's the posture of the Christ follower because that's what our Lord and Savior was like. God honors and esteems humility. And he mentions in verse 6, the mighty hand of God. Well, that kind of harks back to terminology where the Israelites were in Egypt. How did they get out of Egypt? How were they saved? From the mighty hand of God. Trust God's choices. Trust God's timing. Maybe you're suffering as a Christ follower. Maybe you're suffering in your family. Maybe you're suffering uh, in your job. If it's because of your faith or really any reason, trust God's mighty hand. In the proper time, he will lift you up. He knows what he's doing. He may be putting you through a crucible. And then... Peter goes on to say, do you struggle with anxiety when you're in the waiting? Do you feel like, oh, I can't control this situation. I can't control this person. I can't even control my own emotions, my tongue, my my inclinations, my choices. I'm impulsive. I'm compulsive. Peter is saying sometimes, not always, sometimes anxiety can be a lack of trust in God because we want to be controlling. When we want to be controlling, we're actually out of control. We're a one-man show. Everybody realizes uh, we're a little bit out of hand, out of line. Well, what's the solution? Peter says, God cares for you. God cares for you. Remember, Peter didn't go calling on Jesus. Say, hey, let me follow you. Jesus got into Peter's boat. God gets into our life. He's the coach. He gets out on the field. He has a conversation with us. And he says, hey, just listen. I, I, I have your best interest in mind. And it's, it's interesting here because in verse 7, he uses the terminology casting, casting all your anxieties on him. We don't use that term casting very much unless we're fishing. Well, Peter wouldn't have used a rod and reel, but he, he would have used these nets. He would have taken these huge nets with his hands, which, with his calloused fisherman hands, and he would cast it out onto the water. It's almost like Peter's thinking, take all that big ball of anxiety that's that's rolling you around, putting you through this cycle like a hamster on the wheel, and just chuck it out to God. Just cast it out to God because he cares about you. He's got your life in his hands. Maybe Peter was an anxious person. And it's like that old statement, you know, we don't care what people know until we know what they, uh, if they care. Uh, well, God cares for us. And Peter knew that firsthand. And he's telling these individuals, these Christ followers that are suffering and being persecuted, God cares about you. Trust in him. And he starts using military terms again in verse 8. And it harks back actually, actually to chapter 4, verse 1, where he says, arm yourselves. Also in chapter 4, verse 7, be self-controlled, be sober-minded. Well, he says it again here in verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful, be on the lookout, don't get lazy. The devil is looking for your weaknesses. Just like when you're, you're watching the other team, you're observing the other team, you're studying the other team, you're looking for their weaknesses. 
You want to hit the ball where they're most likely going to have an error, where they're most likely not going to be able to get to the ball quickly. Well, the devil's like that. He's looking for our weaknesses. I mean, the devil will gun you down from the mound if he catches you sleeping on first base, stepping off first base, not paying attention. He will gun you down. Peter is saying that just because you cast your cares on the Lord, verse 6 and 7, doesn't mean be careless. Satan will bark at us with shame, with persecution, with doubt. Why does he do that? Because he, he can't steal our salvation. But he can rob us of peace. He can rob us of joy. He can cause us to doubt God. And he can cause us to back down from serving him and to isolate ourselves from the community God, from the presence of God. In essence, in verse 9, Peter's saying, the way to resist the devil is to run to God and run to community. We are in a community, brothers and sisters in Christ. We have a brotherhood. We're all tempted We've got to stick together. You know, going back to chapter 4 again, verses 8, 9, and 10 of chapter 4, Peter is basically saying that when we suffer in this life or when we fall to our own sin, we often retreat back to our old ways. But what we should do is retreat into the community of God and into the presence of God. Same thing here. We feel like the devil is attacking us or we kind of don't even know the devil's attacking us. The way we resist him is to run into the presence of God, run into the community of God, and be reminded that all of us are facing temptation. All of us, in some form or another, we're facing suffering and persecution if we're truly living our faith out loud, if we're truly living unashamed, boldly. And he goes on to say in verse 10, suffering's temporary. Yes, we're all, as Christ followers, going to experience some form of suffering because we take up our cross every day and forfeit what the world has to offer, what our own sinful nature wants us to do. Well, that suffering is temporary in light of eternity because we get eternal life out of the deal. We get to be with God forever and ever and ever. He grants us His own presence. It's not about streets of gold. It's about being in the glorious, amazing presence of God, the new Eden, the new temple, where all of the new heavens and the earth will be filled with the glory of God like the waters fill the seas. So Peter goes on to say that when we suffer for him now, when we choose him now, he's going to restore us later. He's going to confirm us later, strengthen us, establish us. That means we're going to be complete. It's going to be static. It's going to be fixed. There's no wavering. Sin can't pull us out of that new Eden. He is going, Jesus is going to rehabilitate everything. Well, we got to hold on to that. We got to have hope in that in the middle of suffering, in the middle of temptation. Then in verse 11, he just breaks out praise because we're under the glorious dominion of Jesus Christ who bought our salvation forever and ever and ever. We're under his rule, just as all of the spiritual beings are under his rule. And he ends up winning. He's victorious. So we can break out in praise. We can worship through. Then he kind of closes it up and he mentions this guy, Uh, Silvanus, who's actually Silas. I don't know if you remember in in the book of Acts where on Paul's second missionary journey, he's with this guy Silas, and they're locked up in prison. They start singing hymns. They get broken free supernaturally. Well, Silas knew the Apostle Peter as well, and most likely he was either writing this letter down for the Apostle Peter, but probably 
he was carrying this letter to the individuals that would read it and receive it. And uh, he is encouraging, Peter's encouraging to stand firm, but he is basically saying to those that receive it, this guy Silas, I commend him to you and commend this letter to you. He writes to encourage them, to exhort them, to declare the gospel, stay strong in the gospel. Most likely, he is either writing from Rome or he's speaking about the church in Rome. That's what Babylon means. That was a a figure of speech for Rome, Babylon. It was the great evil city. And then the she in verse 13 is a church in Rome. That guy Mark uh, that he mentions as a son in the faith, not biologically, but uh, spiritually, that's also John Mark. Uh, you know, Mark is mentioned in the letter to the Colossians by Paul as a cousin of Barnabas. John Mark went with Barnabas and Paul on their first missionary journey. John Mark's mom, Mary, is mentioned in Acts 12. She had a house church, and when Peter broke out of prison supernaturally by an angel, first place he went is John Mark's mom's house, Acts 12. Read it yourself. We also know that Papias. Uh, in the late 1st century, early 2nd century, mentions that probably most of the Gospel of Mark was from Mark traveling around with Peter, hearing him teach, hearing him preach, and having multiple conversations with him, which means even the Gospel of Mark was kind of vicariously like a Gospel of Peter. So this guy, John Mark, pretty important dude. And um, so these are key players in the 1st century church And Peter is telling the congregation to greet each other, greet each other with a holy kiss. Now that's kind of like a handshake today, maybe a bro hug. And uh, he's saying, receive each other, bring peace to each other. Now this is very important. I know that people get all caught up on this holy kiss stuff, but culturally speaking, the point is when people are in your presence, when brothers and sisters of Christ are in your presence, do they feel the peace of God? Do they walk away feeling the presence and the peace of God because of your demeanor, because of your encouragement, because of your forgiveness? Well, that's how it should be in the kingdom of God. Or do they walk away just thinking, well, I didn't get any encouragement from that guy at all. Do they walk away thinking that guy's kind of a one-man show? Do they walk away thinking, does that guy even really know Jesus? I mean, listen, the words come out of his mouth. Or... Do they walk away from you saying, you know, I kind of got the aroma of Jesus from that guy. You know, he kind of wore humility all over him. Not perfect, not perfect, but Peter saying, hey, I know what it's like to be a young buck who had foot and mouth disease. Not hand, foot, and mouth disease like a lot of children get, but foot and mouth disease, you know, where you got to take your boot out of your mouth because you're presumptuous. Peter's like, I know what that's like. But we, we, we got to get away from that. we got to be people of peace because God has defined us by his redemption, by the peace of Christ. So that is 1 Peter chapter 5. He has identified these Gentile Christians as the new Israel. He's saying they're suffering, they're persecuted, but they got to depend on God. they got to be good stewards of the grace of God. Their marriage has to show it. Uh, uh, in their occupation. They have to show it in their community. They have to show it they're a new priesthood. They need to submit to the government, submit to authority because they're living a new life in Christ. 
I hope this has been encouraging you. I challenge you, don't just read it. Read it over and over and over. Memorize it. Teach other people to read it. Even if you don't have the office of elder, pastor, shepherd, you can be a disciple maker. You can pass on what you have learned. And God would encourage you to do so. Peter would encourage you to do so. I encourage you to do so. This is good stuff, my friends. Be encouraged. Great reminder at the end there, Chad. If you're digging into the first and second Peter book study, we are encouraging you to read the whole chapter every day before you read the verses for that day's devotional. We need to read this over and over so it can sink in. Thanks again, Chad. Great word on humility, anxiety, trusting Jesus, and brotherly love. I guess I never thought of the cast your cares on Jesus as coming from the fisherman Peter once was. I uh, should have put those two together. Good stuff. And of course, I love the reminder that when we're in the battle, Jesus wins. I have some great takeaways, and I bet you do too, guys. Again, I'm looking forward to the next episode, and next time we're jumping into 2 Peter chapter 1. See you next time on the Training for an Eternal Crown podcast. God bless. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of the Training for an Eternal Crown podcast. You can visit our website for more resources and also find this podcast on all major platforms. Full Count Ministries exists to create disciples using the game of baseball. We are a non-profit ministry, and if you have benefited from this resource, we would encourage you to consider donating to the cause to reach every baseball player with the gospel, giving them the opportunity to respond to the gospel, and then to grow in the relationship with Jesus. Please like, subscribe, and share this podcast so that you can play a part in accomplishing the mission that God has put on our hearts for baseball players around the globe. Globe.